So I want to also uh, introduce, for those of you who haven't been here all weekend, tell you just a little bit about our guest speaker for this weekend is Doug Hazen. So Doug and Ruth and two of their children have been with us for the weekend. And uh, Jackie and I met Doug and Ruth uh, a little over 40 years ago when we uh, all showed up at Multnomah Bible College together and started going to Bible school in Portland, Oregon. And we ended up at Dallas Seminary together, and then we ended up on staff together as pastors in Eugene, Oregon for a couple of years. And uh, this special friends, uh, so glad that they're able to be with us this weekend. Doug has influenced my life in his preaching, teaching ministry greatly, especially that Eternal Rewards sermon series that I mentioned to you uh, a couple of nights ago. And uh, one other fun connection that, that uh, uh, Doug has with Lake City Community Church that we found out just recently was that his family uh, was supported as missionaries to Morocco, was it? Mm-hmm. Uh, decades ago, when, way back when Pastor Stewart was a pastor in Lake City Community Church, his family was sent off to the mission field and supported by Lake City Community Church. So that was probably 50 years ago, something like that. So oh, very, very fun. Let's give Doug a very warm welcome again. And, and, uh, we're glad to hear you. Thank you, Jim. Well, I got to say, my Olympic uh, track pursuit began in junior high. Now, I don't know for sure if I had the Olympics in mind, probably girls, <laughs> to be real honest. But um, it began and ended on the same day. Um, the coach threw me in with a couple of guys to run the 440. I think that's one lap, right? And I mean, I gave it everything I got for the first half of a lap. And all of a sudden, mysteriously, these guys started pulling away. And I was giving it everything I had. But I was breathing harder, my heart was killing me, and I'm like, okay, maybe I need to get in shape before I do this. The next day, I landed in the hospital and had my appendix out. My career was over. (laughs) I didn't have to worry about going back and facing the Embarrassment of seeing these guys, the beginning end and end of my race for the gold. <laughs> We've been, if you're here uh, for the first time today, this is Sunday, by the way, Resurrection Day. Don't you love it? Ah, we get to celebrate that day. I just love it every time I go to church. Um, but if you've been here, we've been looking at um, two runners so far. The first was a runner who teaches us how to get out of the blocks, the Samaritan woman. And Jesus, in his gospel presentation to her, includes some things that we don't usually have in ours. He includes the gushing of the Holy Spirit that should be the mark of a Christian. And it's convicting to those of us who got eternal life but we didn't get the fullness of the abundant life. We weren't taught that, perhaps. But the other thing she gives us and that she got was the fact that not only was Jesus someone to be respected as a man, as she addressed him, sir, but that he was a prophet. But not only was he a prophet, he was the Messiah. But not only was He, the Messiah, he taught those people in Sychar for those two days that he was the Savior, not 
of the Jews, not just of the Samaritans. He is the Savior of the world. And when that is set and you're coming out of the blocks, it gives you entirely different perspective on what then your role might be in these years prior to getting to glory. The second guy is a guy that teaches us about the hindrances and actually the, what do we call them, the weights that you can carry. You never see a runner in the Olympics running with his practice weights on. They don't do it. But Christians do it all the time in our race. We've got all kinds of weights. And Peter, the disciple, had a major weight around him. We discovered that that was self-doubt. The disciples came to the mountain. Matthew 28, 16 says they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then, at that very point, Jesus said, all authority is given to me. And I believe that Peter was that one that carried not doubt of the risen Lord. Now, that had all been settled with Thomas, uh, doubting Thomas. All that stuff had been, they'd seen the risen Lord. I think he's doubting himself. We looked at John 21 and how Jesus said, you must follow me. And so we have, and I don't know about some of the rest of you, we had a fantastic huddle group after that, just talking through the, uh, the weights that so many of us have that, that encumber us, as Hebrews says. But we have another one tonight, or today, what is this? <laughs> it's still daytime, all right. And that is this issue of endurance. Um, Jesus is our runner. Because do you know of anyone else who's a better example? In fact, I love Hebrews 12, where it says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So, I'll add that word, next verse, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Consider him. If you want to look at the best endurance runner ever and forever, it is the person of Jesus Christ. And endurance is incredibly, incredibly important for us as, as followers of Jesus. How many, how many people do you know, yourself included, that somehow didn't endure some issue, some problem, some whatever. Do you understand the challenges of endurance? And you know, my observation when we went through some horrendous things in Congo, with these attacks on our lives, the, the threat of soldiers, I, I learned a very valuable lesson when you're passing through a police check you don't stop if the AK-47 is down. You blow through it. If it's up, yeah, you probably better stop. Why did I have to learn this stuff? But it's a part of being in a very volatile part of the world. And I came through it not well. 
I didn't understand some significant principles on endurance that will get you through those types of things. So we're going to consider Jesus this morning. And we're going to consider a place where he endured. The passage says the cross, yes? But I think that includes another place. Can you imagine what that is? You can talk. I heard it. Let's say I did. Gethsemane. Gethsemane illustrates for us endurance like no other portion, I believe, of Jesus' life. By the time Jesus gets to the cross, his will is aligned with the Father's. When he comes to Gethsemane, it is not yet fully aligned. And you get that from what he says. Does that mean he was going to be disobedient? Not at all. But Gethsemane was the place where he reconciled his will with the Father's will. And there are some fascinating lessons to be learned about Gethsemane. Now let me say this, the name Gethsemane, who cares that it means olive press? Who cares? Who cares that it's just down from Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Kidron Valley, on the ascent up to the Mount of Olives? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Because it's not the place. It's what happened there. Like for the Japanese, Hiroshima or Nagasaki. We would never know those names if it weren't for what happened there. Or more recently, Brussels, Nice, Munich, and how many others? Orlando. It's not really the place. It's what happened there. And you today, those of you who have endured, you can point to times when you went through things. I was talking to Bruce Walton. He was sharing with me the birth of their grandson, missing half of his heart. The hospital is not the issue here. It's what happened there. And so at Gethsemane, we have the privilege of studying not a location. We have the privilege of studying a suffering Savior who shows us how to endure. Especially those of us that really don't want to go through it. Unless you're unlike me, but I'm guessing you aren't. <laughs> All right. It's the same thing that uh, the parents of Jameson and Catherine Powell's are going through right now. Two Sundays ago, actually two Saturdays ago, yesterday, uh, Jameson and Catherine appointees with World Venture, 98% supported going to Japan, departing in October. We're traveling with their three children to the Denver area for their final um, training. 
and a trucker hit them from the back. They're all gone. They were all killed in the fiery track, uh, uh, accident. That is a Gethsemane for parents and for siblings, other relatives, for close friends. It's been a Gethsemane for the World Venture family as we've grieved and as many of our World Venture people went to the service at Bethlehem Baptist and you can Google John Piper and listen to his prayer for this dearly loved family from his church. Gethsemane, it's what it is. How would you encourage this family to endure what has to be an excruciating sense of loss and pain? I think there are several ways that we see it. And I'm going to look at Mark 14. Again, I don't, uh, I don't uh, guess that you've brought a Bible. I'm going this, uh, to, this time, I'm going to read it. All right? You guys okay with somebody reading the Bible? Okay. Well, you know. Um, well, you can listen to it. Um, you get the auto, uh, auditory view, but um, I'm going to read uh, from Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 32. And you've, you've heard this before, but listen once again. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. These are intense words in the original. He is in anguish. He is in agony. And a little bit of what we are going to learn is some of the appropriate emotions as you are enduring. It is not wrong to be in anguish, in agony. The Son of God Himself felt this way. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Going a little farther, He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from Him. Abba, Father, He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping, sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? I think he's incredulous. Are you asleep? Watch and pray that so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He did not know what to say to him. Returning to the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here come my betrayers. We miss some of the um, interesting information from the... What's going on here? Uh, because we just have this book that we're looking at today. But um, there are some very fascinating principles that I think are here that will help you as you endure. First of all, 
Endurance knows grief as a godly emotion. I've touched on that in a way. Notice that it does not say he is overwhelmed with anxiety or fear. I don't think those are godly emotions. May you, you may feel them as you're going through some experience. But I'm, I'm careful here because I've, okay, I've failed. You know, gone through something and I'm worried sick. You know, I'm scared to death. I mean, when the guys came in the house and put the, the knives to my neck and the AK-47s to my head, uh, no, I didn't feel sorrow. <laughs> Sorry. I was scared. You okay? Um, so there's a human part to this that, that we understand. But I think it's fascinating to understand that if we go through some kind of loss, grief is a godly emotion. You and I can grieve the Holy Spirit. God is grieved at our sin. It's a good, divine emotion. So don't let yourself think as you're going through some difficult time, oh, I just gotta, I just gotta toughen up. I gotta buck up, you know. I'm sure I'll be better. I gotta be a man, even if you're a woman. Are you kidding? No, grieve. It's actually okay to do that. I saw this especially when a fellow in our church in Gresham, Bill Quinn, um, got cancer. He got it in his arm. And uh, gratefully, they did surgery, radiation, all the stuff, and he went into remission. But I was at the Bible study. Actually, it was a men's uh, breakfast when we had a speaker speak, great speaker, and afterwards, Bill stood up and said, the cancer's back. And he began sobbing because he knew it was over. He died in faith, but I saw that godly sorrow. Sorrow is a, an appropriate emotion. And that is your Jesus in agony there in the garden. Secondly, endurance requires intense spiritual alertness. Did the disciples get this? No, they didn't really. They fell asleep. And I think it's interesting when Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch. I want to say, don't minimize the power of the enemy to sedate you. Can I, is that a word? Into thinking, uh, you know, maybe, this, maybe I'm just making too much of this. Maybe this is... Not, not a big deal. But how many of us make really poor decisions at times of Gethsemane when we are overwhelmed, let's say, with financial loss and on the brink of bankruptcy and we make stupid choices because we really haven't pursued God? What is your will in this? What is it that you want to do? Don't minimize the power of the enemy. Uh, Peter is so clear. He is like a what? Roaring lion. I don't like either of those words. All right? He is on the attack. Always. And it, do, you, do you understand 
that because Satan is Satan, he has not one ounce of godly characteristics. So don't ever think he thinks he feels sorry for you. No, he comes after you again and again. One slightest little sign of weakness. He attacks. He'll take you out. He'll take you out every time if you let him. He is an enemy. He is a, describe him, a bad guy. We don't have, we don't have words to describe this enemy of our souls. Spiritually alert. Absolutely. We must be spiritually alert. Another fellow in our church just last year was uh, arrested for, um, uh, he, was, he was charged with abusing his four-year-old foster daughter. And Gabe went to jail. Um, and I met with him, oh, numerous times in jail and watched this young man blossom and grow as he devoured the Word of God. He, they, somebody gave him a Bible there in jail. And I mean, it was just broken back and he had underlined all kinds of things. God was speaking to his heart. And I became convinced that he was not guilty because the Spirit of God was so alive in him. And actually, his testimony about what happened had made it real clear to me. No, there's no way this guy can be guilty. But the DA took it all the way through, right to the trial. And I was not in the trial. I was supposed to be a character witness, didn't uh, work out. But sitting outside, I was with our associate pastor and uh, two or three others. But uh, our associate pastor, Jerry, and I especially, we're just intensely in prayer. You talk about on the spiritual alert, wow, were we ever. Because you could feel the presence of the enemy, if I can say it that way. There was just darkness um, that, that we sensed. And we were praying and praying and praying. And the reports we were getting from the courtroom were not good. This DA was doing a masterful job of pointing, pointing out the horrible nature of this crime and that this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy. And at one point, uh, probably the second day of the trial, I turned to Jerry and I said, man, Jerry, I'm, I'm just really, really tired. I mean, I'm really worn out. He said, you know, I feel that way too. And then he said, wait a minute. I think this is Satan. He said, let's go down, let's go out of the courtroom, cross the street grab a cup, a cup of coffee and, and just go through some scriptures uplifting the name of Jesus. And we did. Went to the Psalms, began praising God, and it was gone. That fatigue was gone. We were back on the alert. We went up and we prayed again like we had before. We were invited into the courtroom and the final arguments were horrendous. Oh, I said, I, I thought to myself, we got to start figuring out how we're going to visit this brother in jail. But God had told this brother, I will vindicate you at the trial. And sure enough, after all the arguments were done, the judge said, no doubt, a little girl has been horrifically abused but you have not proven to me that this man did it, not guilty. 
it wouldn't have mattered if he'd been guilty or not. The fact, the, the thing I learned was this intense need for spiritual alertness as we go through our Gethsemanes. Be spiritually alert. That's a great lesson at this point. Thirdly, the difficulty of the race demands prayer as your primary weapon. And you're saying, well, yeah, teach me something I don't know. No, you don't know it. And neither do I. Because as soon as that bad news comes, what do you do? Well, if you're a kid, you call your mom. Maybe if you're an adult, you call your mom. <laughs> um, or you call your banker. Or you're, you're going to talk to your pastor. Pastor, I've got to talk to you. Um, if it's really a serious thing and this is what you should do, you call 911. It's the absolutely knee-jerk thing you do and you should do it. But how many of us never get to prayer? Or we call for the prayer team and we ask them to pray for us. Jesus tells us, no, the responsibility for prayer, if you're going through the Gethsemane is squarely on you. And don't tell me you can't pray. I'm not trying to be cold-hearted or anything. I'll tell you what, you, when you're desperate, you'll pray. When we were being attacked, I could pray. I didn't have any problem with prayer at that point. My daughter, oldest daughter, when she was trying to deliver, um, her first son, our grandson, and that baby's head turned and it got stuck. And 30 hours into it, I am outside crying out to God, deliver her. Yeah, I could pray. So when you're going through it, make prayer your primary weapon, not those positive secondary things of fellowship and people coming around you. Those are great. But you take the initiative for prayer yourself. Uh, I think it's on you. Fourthly, this is one that I didn't understand till we came back from Congo. Endurance acknowledges the silence of God. Have you experienced his silence? Have you been in some type of a situation where you've begged God to speak? You've said, God, it's not that I don't want to be obedient. I do. Just tell me. Tell me what's going on. And you hear nothing. And you're in the Word. and you're, I, That's what I did. I, after we were attacked, I was crying out to God. God, speak to me. Tell me, what is it that's going on? What are you doing? 21 months, nothing. And I was in the Word every day. What is God doing? You have to understand the silence of God. In this passage, when does God speak? He doesn't. If the Son of God could not be described as one fervent in prayer, who could be? If the Son of God could not somehow raise the voice of God the Father to his need, who could? 
No, the principle in Gethsemane is that God often goes silent. And I believe he does this so that, and this was my experience, when he speaks, we are staggered by his glory. <gasps> oh, oh, like the resurrection. Of course God could have spoken. Didn't he do it on that Mount of Transfiguration we talked about? This is my beloved son. God could have spoken. Why didn't he speak in Gethsemane? Because he had a voice to be heard when by his divine power he raised Jesus from the dead. And we all say, wow, wow. greater glory to God. His silence is a setup for his glory. Five, endurance is not intimidated by impossible odds. It's a good one. You notice what Jesus prays? He prays a prayer that is not biblical. I mean, can I say that? I mean, the prophets have all said the Messiah has to die, has to suffer and die. He was teaching his own disciples this. And he has the audacity to say, God, all things are possible for you. Let this cup pass from me. No, Jesus, you can't pray that. You have to die. And we miss the incredible strength of his faith. All things, all things are possible with you, Father. Let this cup pass from me, if it be your will. Could God somehow have reversed all of that scripture and decision that the Messiah had to die? Yes or no? Well, if you said no, you don't, you don't have the same God I got. This God can do anything. Was it his will? Absolutely not. He had to die. But that did not prevent Jesus at the end of his life for praying the prayer. Can you pray impossible prayers? I mean, you know, that cancer di diagnosis is stage four. Can you pray for healing? Absolutely, you can goes against everything that the medical community has told you. I don't care what kind of cancer. Can you pray for that son who has not just strayed from God, but he has turned strongly against him and become a Buddhist, like one of the young men in our church in Eugene. I mean, it's over. I mean, it's done. Or like the guy in our church who walked completely away from the faith and told me, not with pride, but just as a matter of fact, Doug, I am an apostate. Can you pray for Alan? Yes. Because our God is the God of the impossible. And your prayers should not be 
intimidated by the impossible odds. Endurance also is often a solo race. Ah, I know you didn't want to hear this, but look at what happens. It wasn't that many hours earlier that Jesus is riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem and how many people are saying Hosanna? I don't know, a bunch. And then all of a sudden he's with the twelve. And then he gets to the garden and it's down to leaving eight here and he takes three with him. And then it's down to him and God. And on the cross, it feels like it's just him. Have you been there? It's the old Negro spiritual. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Yeah. It often is true that your Gethsemane is a solo performance. You run the race by yourself at that point. Oh, people come around you. I know, I mean, we gather around, but you have to bear the pain of it yourself. Why? Because God wants to teach you to endure. For some reason, that is an incredibly important quality as far as he is concerned. I have a friend who uh, adopted, uh, oh, he's adopted two or three kids. And uh, at one point, this um, adopted kid got really mad with his mother. My friend was upstairs doing whatever, and he could hear this argument going on. And I mean, it got escalated, and pretty soon it was like shouting. And uh, he finally thought, I, I gotta go down and find what's going on. He goes down, and I mean, this son is livid. And he stomps out the door and he says, I'm leaving. Actually, before he stomped out the door, he said he went and got his bag and put all of his electronics in it. He said probably 80 pounds of electronics. I'm leaving. <laughs> and um, he staggers out the door and my friend followed him. And he said, what are you doing? His son said, I'm running away. And went down the stairs and started walking away. Um, my friend followed him. And now the son turns around and says, what are you doing? Uh, I'm running away too. Well, you can't do that. Well, sure I can. Um, ah, whatever. And he keeps walking. He walks about, you know, a block or two up this road. And he turns around and says, what are you doing? And his dad says, I'm running away. You can't run away. I'm running away. If you're running away, I'm going to run away. And finally, he says to his son, son, do you think it might be wise if we could somehow talk about this? And he knew what this boy was facing. He'd had a pretty rough start, rejected by his parents. And let me tell you, some of you understand that as you have fostered and adopted kids, or maybe you are a foster adoptive kid, and you know, you know the pain of rejection that still sits there in your heart. And he said, son, let me, let me help you understand something. 
When you were conceived, your heavenly Father was there. When you were born, your heavenly Father was there, even if your earthly Father was not. And when you were rejected by your mother, your heavenly Father was there. And when Mom and I adopted you, your heavenly Father was there. We love you. We will never leave you. But you have to understand that you have a Father who has been there your entire life and actually in eternity past designed you to a T and even foresaw all of this stuff that has happened in your life. The point is, yes, endurance is a solo thing, but not really. Because you have a heavenly Father who stands with you and runs with you, even if he may be silent. Finally, endurance aligns your will with God. There's two prayers. One, if it is possible, and then if it is not possible. And the second one, Jesus' will is aligned. And you see it in uh, verse 41 when Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. He's got it. This is God's will for me. And let me say, having your will aligned has nothing to do with understanding. Nothing at all. It took me a long time to understand what God was trying to do in our experiences in Congo, in my life. It doesn't matter. God will align your will with his as you endure. So how about you? How's the race going? Have you sidelined yourself? Or will you endure? When we came back from Congo, I was so impressed with 2 Timothy 2.2. It's the verse that I had gone to Congo based on. The idea of faithful men teaching other men who will teach others also. Yeah! The multiplication of, it's a discipleship term. And I always thought the next verse was a new paragraph. It's not. In the context of multiplication, it says, verse 3, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The work of God through you and the work of endurance go side by side. Don't fear that. Don't worry about that. Yes, you'll grieve it when it happens. But this is normal stuff. I got that from John Piper himself in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Chapter 3, A Theology of Suffering. And as I'm reading through it, God spoke to my heart and was saying, Doug, you didn't get this? How could you not understand? 
Suffering is a part of God's plan for our lives. And so is endurance. Hebrews goes so, goes to far, so far as to say you have need of endurance. Ponder that one. But regardless, endure. There's a uh, documentary. I all call it a documentary. It's not really a movie called uh, Running the Sahara. If you've never seen this, it is worth it if you're needing to endure. Three runners, American, Ca uh, Canadian, and Korean, run from, I think it was Senegal, to the Red Sea in Egypt. 4,311 miles, let's say. They run it in 111 days. If your math is pretty good, that's the equivalent of two marathons a day. All right? Yes, they're called ultra marathoners. But as they were running and their bodies were breaking down, putting well over 10,000 calories into their bodies day after day and not getting enough to eat, they couldn't eat fast enough to get the energy back in running. One of the runners decided, I can't do it. I can't do it. Watch, the, watch that video to watch the leader of the group appeal to this guy. This guy with tears coming down his face. And the leader saying, you can't quit. Don't quit. My appeal to you as you endure today or tomorrow or next week or whenever, because you all will. Don't quit. Your Father is with you. He will carry you. You will come through. And the scripture actually says, you get gold at the end. Run the race. So Father, that's easy for me to say. But it's really hard, God, for us to do. And you know that. That's why you gave us Jesus, tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. So he's gone to the limits of temptation, the frustration, the whatever the temptation, and he endured. God, may we follow his example. May we be enabled by him for his glory so that together, when we see him in glory, we might celebrate with him our lives of endurance so that he again might be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.